Hi, Katie. It's Devin Handy. Hi, how are you? Good. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Oh, of course. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Angie? I'm excellent. Great. Let's get started. Welcome to Candidate, real conversations with women running for office. I'm your host, Devin Handy. Normally, I host Hellbent Podcast, a political commentary show that approaches current events and public policy with a heavy intersectional feminist lens. But we've teamed up with Emily's List to introduce you to some of the women who are running for office in the 2018 midterm election. Each week, we speak with candidates around a theme. This week, I had the pleasure to speak to two women about LGBTQ representation in Congress. Gender parity is a clear goal. Only 19% of our representatives are women. But bringing more women to the table is about more than just gender. LGBTQ women, young women, women of color, all are necessary to have a fully representational government. I had the pleasure to speak with Katie Hill and Angie Craig. They are both smart, competent women running for Congress with passion and a plan for change. They would also each bring a wider representational lens to Congress if elected. Angie Craig and her wife have kids and have fought to keep custody of their family together. She would be the first openly lesbian woman with children elected to Congress. And she would also be only the second woman in Minnesota to run for the same federal office twice. The average amount of times it takes to win a federal office is two. She's one of only two women to stick with it in Minnesota. Katie Hill is an openly bisexual woman and 30 years old, a member of the millennial generation. Only four of 435 representatives currently are under the age of 35. We need women with a range of lived experiences in office. We need to break up the monotony and homogeny of middle-aged white men in office. And this is how it starts. In key ways, our representatives don't actually look like us. Women are running in droves for their communities, for gender parity, and now to make sure that our government starts to look like the communities that they serve. Representation matters, and these women are here to represent all people in their communities, and we need to make sure that we open that door and let everyone in. Our guest today is Katie Hill, who is running for Congress in California's 25th District, which is, you're, you're actually my neighbor. I live in Los Angeles, so I'm very oh, excited nice. to speak with you. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. I really want to jump in to this idea of representation and the fact that if you're elected, you're going to be one of a very few people in elected to Congress and the Senate who are part of the LGBTQ community. So you are openly bi. Um, And myself, I'm also an openly bi woman married to a man. And, you know, I sometimes get a little bit of pushback on that. But do you think Mm -hmm. that your identity um, as a as a bisexual woman is something is an asset that you'll bring to Congress. I absolutely think it's an asset that I'll bring to Congress. I mean, it's funny. I was talking with some of my team about this not that long ago, but I I didn't realize when I started running that a big part of my role would end up being explaining bisexuality to people who, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, I think see themselves as, as open and as, you know, tolerant and as people who support the LGBT community, but who just flat out don't understand it. And, um, you know, I'm talking, this comes up all the time uh, when I have like these awkward conversations. I will always know it's coming because I'll have, I'll have like a donor or somebody else who's like, well, 
you know, I wanted to talk to you about this thing, and 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 we're like, oh, here it goes. And it, they always <laughs> they always call it they always call it the buy thing, and so <laughs> <laughs> so it's but it's it's a total it's a total thing now. And you know, I've gotten pretty comfortable. I mean, I I've been all right explaining it to pre- people previously, since you know, sure, it's it's still something that if you're openly buy, especially if you're in a if you're still openly buy and you're in a relationship to either you know a man or a woman, I think it's it's something that a lot of people kind of don't understand. But um, yeah, I think when in terms of going back to whether it's an asset or not, I think one it is the more we can normalize these sorts of things, the better. I mean, uh, and that's part of you know me running was saying like I'm not going to deny a part of my identity. Um, even if it might be easier to do so. Uh, and right. and I think that that's been something that's um, uplifting for a lot of people, not just who are in the LGBT community, but who are also um, just in other in other aspects of their life, right? So, um, so I think it's something that's important to me. I think that if I can educate people uh, throughout the campaign trail about it, then I'll certainly be able to help educate members of Congress who maybe don't understand it either. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I feel like we talk a lot about gender parity, especially when we're talking about, you know, Emily's list back candidates or, or just women in general running for office. But there are so many intersections of representation that aren't there in Congress that mm-hmm. these types of representations are also so important. So on the campaign trail with this part of your identity that you have not hidden and you know, really embraced. Has it been an issue for you? Have you run into pushback in your in your district about this? Well, it's funny because, you know, that was my initial thought, right, was that you'd get, like, conserv- you know, more of a conservative-leaning kind of district, that it would be a challenge. But um, to be honest with you, you know, pretty overwhelmingly, even people who are typically Republicans or who are conservative-leaning independents, who say, like, I don't really care what you do um, if you're going to actually be a representative for me. And uh, that was my that was my hope. And that was the thing that was the gamble that I took in in deciding that I was going to do this. Right. Was that was that people people don't actually, especially here in California, I think we're, we're lucky you know, being right outside of L.A. Right. But that that's a it's it's not something that is, people are quite as um, concerned about as you might see in other parts of the country. And, um, but I, but I also, where I have seen it, interestingly, was in the primary, I had, I had some people who were supporters of other candidates in the primary say that I was pretending to be bi just to get the support of different, um, LGBT groups and, and other things like that, or to add to my quote unquote democratic credentials. And, um, so that was, that was something that I totally didn't expect. And, um, you know, especially coming from, from the left, right? So uh, that was that was actually one of the more challenging and frustrating parts of the campaign so far was and, and disheartening was saying like oh yeah because I want to pretend to be bi that makes it a lot easier just to get an endorsement from Stonewall <laughs> or something like that as much as I like Stonewall right. Um, right but and then the others that I've gotten pushback on it from are also you know people who would tend to be supporters but who 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 say like I just don't know why you would make it a campaign issue and I'm like well I, I'm not making it a campaign issue it's just it is who I am and 
the media likes, I mean, it's something that people like to talk about because it's different and, and I'm, and I'm fine to embrace that. Right. But that doesn't mean I'm saying to anybody, you should vote for me because I'm bi. Like that just has nothing to do with it. The bigger point to me is that this is part of who I am. This is part of who a lot of people are, but who aren't, who don't feel like they can come out about it for the exact same reasons I'm seeing on the campaign trail. And, um, and so I, I, you know, I kind of come at it from that angle. Right. Right. I mean, I, I feel like something like that, I guess, especially for people who say you're making it an issue. I mean, it feels like you're you in particular are not making it any more of an issue than any other part of your lived experience that you're bringing right. to exactly. your candidacy. Exactly. Um, I mean, I mean, to that end, you were instrumental in in expanding path, which I mean, I again, I, I live in California, so I know what it is. But can you actually explain what path is? Because I think it's such a wonderful organization. Yeah. So PATH is, it stands for People Assisting the Homeless, and it's now the largest homeless services organization in the state of California. Um, We've got offices from San Diego to San Jose, uh, literally helping thousands of individuals, veterans, and families move off the streets into permanent homes every single year. And I was with the organization for about eight years, um, and I stepped down from my position as executive director uh, uh, last year in September uh, to work on the campaign full-time. Running for Congress, and and you're running against Steve Knight, who's a piece of work. So <laughs> what? <laughs> so what? What is your main campaign message to the people in your district? Let's say that the thing that it boils down to the most is that our political system is broken because we have politicians like Steve Knight who are accountable to big corporate donors, to their party leadership, and to the wealthiest people in this country, and not to the people that they're supposed to serve. So um, if we want to get any real progress made on the issues that matter the most to people in our community, whether it's the cost of health care or the cost of housing or, you know, availability of mental health and substance abuse services or, um, you know, the, the other things that are coming up all the time on the campaign trail, whether it's immigration or guns, uh, simple gun legislation that's going to help keep our kids safe. All of these things are impossible for us to make real progress on if we don't have somebody who's fundamentally accountable to the people in our district. And that's not Steve Knight. I mean, he's shown over and over again that he's going to vote with the special interests that are funding his campaign rather than with us. We've seen that with his health care vote, where he said that he would, you know, he voted to take away health care for millions of Americans, including 60,000 people in our district. And you've seen it with his vote on the tax plan, which overwhelmingly hurt people in California, including people in our district, by getting rid of, uh, you know, the largest, the single largest tax deduction um, that people use in our community by far. And so I think I think that those are just two examples of where he's failed us and has instead voted with his party or with the corporations that are funding his party. <clears throat> and I think that that's kind of the message that is resonating the most with people, regardless of party line. So we, we, you can look at Washington, no matter where you sit on the political spectrum, and say that this isn't working and we need to send people who are going to do something different who are fundamentally accountable to us. Yeah, and I, and I think to that point, to the point of representation, not just in the LGBTQ community, but do you feel like you better represent the people in your community because of these issues than than someone like Steve Knight? Is is this where your your community wants? This is what Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know, a lot of that comes from as you as you reference life experiences. And I know that my my experiences uh, are not unique to me, but, you know, I've struggled with medical debt. My family has struggled with addiction and with mental health. We've got, um, 
you know, the, the challenges facing my generation face in our community every day are ones that I've lived through and that my family lived through. So, um, you know, Steve Knight, I think he, he's someone who grew up in our community, and I respect that, but he also came from a political dynasty. I mean, his grandfather was governor in California. His uh, dad had, you know, served in the state legislature in seats that ultimately Steve Knight kind of inherited from him. And um, and so he, I would say that he hasn't faced the same kind of struggles that a lot of people in our community have. And, um, you know, I think that that's more, more than that, more than just what you've lived personally is who you're ultimately going to be accountable to. And, um, you know, one of the things that I'll give credit to Emily's list for is the, the, my ability to fundraise individually as opposed to being dependent on, you know, big corporate donors or special interest group donors or, or the party itself is a big part of what can set me apart from Steve Knight. I mean, we've outraised him every single time, which means that the money that's coming in to protect his seat are from the corporations that benefited from the tax plan. It's from Kevin McCarthy and Paul Ryan and even Donald Trump himself is fundraising for him. So you know where his loyalties lie. And the fact that I've been able to raise independently of that shows, you know, it, it shows that ultimately I'm, I'm accountable to the people who vote for me and to the well over, you know, 15,000 people at this point who have donated to our campaign. Um, it's, it's nothing like being accountable to a small set of people who are keeping you in office. Yeah, I mean, and also, I guess to that point, you know, you mentioned your generation, you are definitely on the younger side to run for this seat. And and that's another type of representation. We don't see a lot of younger people in these positions of power. Do you think that that's something that will also bring something to Congress that would be helpful in terms of, of representation? Yeah, I mean, we're the largest, millennials are the largest voting bloc. Uh, you know, the, the largest block of people who are eligible to vote in the entire country, and yet we only have five of the 435 seats in Congress. And uh, that's an unacceptable disparity. And when you talk about why have we never been able to mobilize young people to vote, it's like, well, they don't, they're not looking for anyone who looks like them, who understands the issues that they're facing. And so I think part of what our campaign's been successful with and what we're, what we're continuing to build upon is saying, like, look, this is this isn't just about me or just about this race. This is about a movement that is really representing a generational shift in uh, in how we address problems. Um, and the more people who are who are standing up from our generation who are saying that we're tired of politics as usual and we're demanding action on these issues that are so critical to us, whether it's the fact that we're seeing the effects of climate change right now in our communities or the fact that we we really do. So many people in our generation don't know if they'll ever buy a home or how they're going to retire or, you know, what kind of jobs they're going to be able to get after college. And um, and not to mention healthcare. I mean, right, like these are these are the things that are facing people every day. And what we see over and over again are politicians in Washington failing to address those. Um, so I think I think uh, I feel I feel a sense of obligation of saying that, that that I'm part of this changing face of politics and um and I, I really see it as my duty in a lot of ways to inspire young people to get involved in a way that we haven't before you can see this in our polling too when when you look at if you look at the polls i'm exactly tied with Steve Knight pretty much but that's accounting for more or less a normal election turnout in a midterm which means that young people aren't showing up to vote in in our in those projections and uh but if you look at the breakdown the, the voting breakdown by age I'm winning people under 50 by 27 points, and I'm winning women under 50 by 39 points. 
So if people under 50 stand up and vote and say that this election is too important, this is our, our future and our kids' future is on the line right now in a way that we couldn't possibly have imagined even just a few years ago, then, uh, then I, we, we see changes in every aspect of representation. No, I, I think that's a fantastic point. Well, Katie, I know you're very busy, so thank you for taking some time to speak with me and and talk about this very important issue. Um, I was really excited to talk to you. I feel like if we were neighbors, we would definitely be friends. So, <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I was very thank excited to talk so to much. you. All right. All right well, thank Have you. A Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Our next guest today is Angie Craig. She is running for Congress in Minnesota's second district. Welcome, Angie, and thank you so much for joining us. I, I really want to just jump right in and and get right to it. And I, I want to talk to you about representation in Congress because obviously, you know, with Emily's list, and we're always working towards gender parity. Only nineteen percent of Congress. Uh, representatives are women, um, but there's also other dimensions of representation that are are lacking. And you would be the the first openly lesbian woman with children to be uh, to, to in Congress. So is that is that something that you feel is important in terms of of making our government more? Uh, Representational. Yeah, I, so I, I absolutely believe intersectionality is is critical uh, in this country, and you know, I, I, it's interesting to me. So start with the fact that uh, I'm a woman, and I'm only the second woman to ever run for federal office twice for the same position. So you know, you think about really? yeah, in Minnesota, I'm only the second woman wow. ever to run twice for the same federal office. And I was a little bit stunned when I found that out after the last cycle. And then you go look at the data and the average run for Congress to win is, you know, it's two. So until women, starting sure. with until women, and, and this is going to be my, I'm going to win in 2018. And this is going to be what I go around and tell every group of young women. Um, when we run, we have to stick with it. We have to run again. And, and you know, there's so much tied up into that, right? I mean, um, uh, we're never going to reach the representation in this country, equal representation at the policymaking table, unless we understand how, the, uh, how it happens, right? And, you know, being the first um, LGBTQ mother um, in this Congress, Look, it's it's really really cool. It's not why I'm running for Congress, but but sure. it's really cool. And I my kids, my boys are you know they're in their early twenties and their late teens, and uh, you know it's been it's been quite the fight over the years, um, uh, sort of even becoming a mom. And so I just think we take those experiences that we have when we represent people. And maybe your experience is a little bit different from mine, but being a mom, becoming a mom uh, to my son, Josh, was a real battle and a real fight. And so it puts me in a position of just a different range of experiences, maybe than uh, some other candidate. And another candidate's going to have a completely different range of experiences than I do. So, I, you know, that's, that's how we win. Yeah. 
I, I feel like that's kind of what I was getting to is that it, it's not so much about you or one's per- particular identity, but a range of lived experiences, because it feels like so much of Congress right now is a homogenous group of people with a homogenous group of lived experiences. And you don't have, I think why it feels so revolutionary that it is because we just don't see that type of representation, nor does that type rep- of representation get talked about a lot. So from that perspective, what parts of your lived experience are really informing your run? So, you know, you, you run for office because you want to change something. You don't like the rep that you have. So what parts of your identity, your lived experience are informing that? Well, I think that's exactly right. We bring all of our lived experiences into whatever race for elected office we're running. And for me, uh, you know, I start out with, in my speeches, it shouldn't matter how much money you're born into in this country. If you're willing to work hard, this country ought to be available for all of us. And that comes from the fact that I grew up in a mobile home court to a single mother who I watched go to school for nine years in and out of junior colleges and community colleges to get her college degree and become a teacher. So my part of my lived experience is we grew up with a lot of love, but you know, not a lot of stuff in a mobile home court. We grew up right. without the absolute certainty that uh, we would be able to go to college. Um, so having lived that experience of not having access to health insurance for parts of my childhood, and then spending 22 years working in healthcare now, I'm bringing all of that to me when I get to Congress. I know what it feels like not to have insurance in your family because you can't afford it. And, you know, you bring all of that uh, to uh, Congress. And I'm not sure there's a lot of members of Congress uh, currently today who ever went without much. And I think we've got to send more folks with that range of experience. I I came out um to close family and friends uh, when I was in my late teens in Arkansas. I uh, lived in uh, farm, I lived in farm country. I lived in the city. I've had just a range of experiences where I had to fight for the right to adopt my own child and built a family uh, a a little bit non-traditionally. So, you know, in addition to the other things I did, like, climb up the ladder at a Fortune 500 company and join the executive team. All of these lived experiences go into, you know, showing up to work every day in Washington and understanding what real folks are going through in your district. Yeah. Yeah, I I think that's really such a huge part of this is that it's, it's less about who you are you know, in terms of these individual identities. But I, I do want to ask, you're you're running in Minnesota. Have you experienced homophobia or pushback or anything that shocked you during your campaign or your previous campaign? Well, you know, the truth is, you know, if anybody who's homophobic, or, you know, they're not going to vote for me or anyone else running on the Democratic ticket. So uh, because we have such uh, a a platform based on equality. Uh, Minnesota, I chose Minnesota as as my home um, all those years ago because it was exactly the kind of place where 
we believed that uh, we could have our family and it would be, uh, we would be accepted, our kids would be accepted. And that's exactly what we experienced in Minnesota. I worked kind of in the background on um, the constitutional amendment uh, that tried to ban same-sex marriage in this state uh, as the head of HR for a Fortune 500 company here. And, um, you know, and we were the first company in this state that stood up against that constitutional amendment. And then, of course, the following year when we took the House, the Senate, and we had the governor's mansion, we turned that to marriage equality. So, you know, the voters of this district, what, what they care about um, is that you're going to fight for all of our families, and I certainly uh, am going to fight for all the families in this district, but I'm running very open because voters deserve to know uh, who they're getting uh, when uh, we're running for Congress, and I talk about my family just like any other politician would or any other person seeking public office. I talk about my wife and our four sons. Yes. You know, it's interesting because I've talked to other women. Your children are obviously older now. But a lot of women who have younger children get asked a lot about, what are you going to do with your kids if you win? What are, have you experienced a lot of that sort of sexism on the campaign? Not on the campaign, but, you know, I haven't experienced that level on, of sexism on the campaign. I will tell you, though, that, you know, I grew up in the business world, uh, had a lot of different jobs, and that certainly was something that uh, I was asked along the way. And you know, and, and male candidates, men in the workplace, uh, they don't have to answer that same question. Uh, and so I, I certainly have faced the kinds of questions, but not in this forum. I've got, you know, I've got four kids who all have uh, nearly full-grown beards at this point. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, in a different, I'm in a different place in my life. Sure, sure, absolutely. And I, I do want to ask you, uh, last but not least, talking about again, lived experiences and, and building your family non-traditionally and, and not so much why the, that itself is important to your campaign, but w- how that has impacted the way you view policy and what sort of policies you're going to bring to Congress. Do you feel that, there, that because you've had a, a, such a different life from, from another candidate, for example, from, you know, maybe a white male candidate somewhere that that shifts the way you view policy for the, for the better? You know, I I think having lived the experience of some things weren't available to my family, uh, some legal rights weren't available to my own family. It just makes me more committed uh, to make sure we have equality for everyone. Um, You know, I think, uh, one of the stories that uh, I really like is is around the idea of why is it important that, um, you know, we see more women in office. And, you know, I used to think it was maybe more about, you know, so that young girls would see that as an example and I could be a role model. I actually have come to believe that the most important thing is for my four boys to see women at the policymaking mm-hmm. yeah. table, women in leadership at companies. It's more important that um, my boys see that women are equal in society. And, you know, I, I, I have sort of changed my thinking around this as, as we've, um, you know, as I've, I've looked at just how much more work we have left to do and, of course, expectations in our society. And at the end of the day, 
you know, I'm not running for Congress because I'm gay or because I'm a woman or because I'm a mother. Uh, I'm running for Congress because I believe that I can represent all of our families and also have some uh, empathy and understanding of, of you know, for, for all of our, our kids. Well, Angie, thank you so much for speaking with me. And uh, I'm so excited to to see you elect. I, I, I'm still shocked. I'm sorry. I'm kind of hung up on this, that you are the first woman to attempt the same office twice. And, and, or and only, only the, second. the second in Minnesota. Isn't that amazing? The, Isn't, yeah, I, it's stunning. That, yeah. Blowing my mind. That's blowing my well, mind. So, I, you know, well, I thank you so much. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm I'm excited to to follow your campaign and good good luck on the campaign trail. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to Candidate with me today. I hope you enjoyed the interviews with Katie and Angie as much as I did. They are both smart, competent women that would be excellent choices to represent their communities in Congress. You can learn more about Katie at katiehillforcongress.com or on Twitter at katiehill, the number 4CA. You can learn more about Angie at angiecraig.com or on Twitter at angiecraigmn. Please remember, register to vote. Midterm elections are coming up. We are 55 days away. That is right around the corner. So tell your friends, tell your mom, Make sure that you have a plan. We'll see you back here with more candidates so we can introduce you to the future elected leaders of this country. Candidate is a production of Hellbent Media. It is produced by me, Devin Handy, and Varsha Venkata Subaranium, and the team at Emily's List. For more information, you can find us at hellbentmedia.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at hellbentpod. You can also learn about other Emily's List back candidates at emilyslist.com. A special thanks to the candidates and their teams and everyone who helps to make this podcast possible. We are so excited to introduce you to the future elected leaders of this country.